Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have two guests on, and they both are affiliated with East Coast Recovery Center. Welcome, ladies. And could you introduce yourselves? Thanks, Tony. I'm Megan Barubi, and I'm the clinical director at East Coast Recovery. And I'm Kristen Essen. I'm the director of community health and public relations at East Coast Recovery. Okay. Well, I thank you both for being here today. So, Megan, we'll start off with you. Um, Can you give us a little rundown on what East Coast Recovery Center is and how long they've been in in business and so forth? Yeah, so East Coast Recovery has been open for about a year and a half. We are a substance use primary partial hospitalization program. We also have an intensive outpatient program component. So PHP and IOP are um, the abbreviations of those that a lot of people might be familiar with. The partial hospitalization program is Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And during that time, we have um, five clinical process groups. And also um, clients would be seeing a individual therapist. There's medication management. And the IOP is half of that. So it's um, half a day that individuals would come for treatment. And the treatment groups including the individual, um, really have a multitude approach. So we have um, a lot of different modalities that we use or our clinicians use when working with our clients. And some of those are holistic, some of them are psychoeducational, and then a lot are dependent on the clinician's training. Okay, so understanding this correctly, they don't spend the night there? That's correct. We have a clinical um, building here in Cohasset, and then we do have sober living as well. So a lot of our clients do stay at sober living if that's something they choose to do, but it's not a requirement. So you said a couple of initials back there. Can you explain what those initials stand for? Yeah, so PHP, that's Partial Hospitalization Program. And that is, it's a level of care that provides all day clinical services without an overnight component. So there's group therapy um, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And then that's Monday to Friday, so five days a week. And within that, there is also individual therapy. Clients meet with a clinician for about 50 minutes per week. And there is a medication management component with a nurse practitioner. The other initial was IOP, which is intensive outpatient programming. And that's half a day treatment. So that would be from 9 a.m. to noontime. And that could be three to five days a week. So there would still be clinical processing for three hours a day, as well as an individual therapy component and also medication management. So you as the clinical director, you're you're what part of this do you do you deal with? All of it. So I really um, kind of oversee all the programming for both the PHP and the IOP. So I kind of make a curriculum in conjunction with the clinicians and their strengths and their abilities and their training to implement for our client care. 
and I also run groups as well and talk with clients and I'm here every day. So, okay. Christian, what do you, what is your function? So as the director of community health and public relations, I, I guess the way I'd refer to myself is I'm kind of like a connector. So coming from working in the healthcare system, I saw the deficit in substance use treatment as far as like everybody was working in silos. So you have the hospital, you had primary care, and then, you know, the, the community component to that, they weren't connecting. So those dots all need to be connected for a good recovery maintenance program. So coming here, I'm able to kind of like connect those dots. So we have clients come in and, you know, we're providing all these services while they're here, but we also want to set them up for success when they leave. And that happens in the community. So what I do is I kind of have my finger on the pulse in the recovery community as far as what's available to them, what, what actually is out there. Some people don't know there's a recovery gym 20 minutes away that it, the only requirement is 48 hour sobriety where they do rock climbing and CrossFit and yoga and they go on trips together and they're a community in themselves. Then we have all these recovery centers now. We have Social Peer Recovery right in Situate, a New Way Recovery in Quincy. They offer all different types of programming. There's different coalitions in different communities. I just did a Narcan training last week for the community where, you know, a lot of people still don't know that much about Narcan and they're not carrying Narcan, which is so important. So I kind of go out into the community, but I also bring the community back to us. So I'll have a speaker come in on Fridays and, you know, tell about these services that I'm talking about. So our clients get a feel for what that looks like. And then last week, I actually brought, we brought the clients in the two sober living facilities, the men's house and the women's house. We brought them into the Phoenix, the gym in Boston, so they could be exposed to that to see, you know, one size does not fit all as far as their recovery. So I wanna expose them to as many things as possible while they're with us to see what they gel with. Cause you know, we have the traditional AA and NA and that's great and that works for a lot of people but it doesn't work for everybody. So there's so many different modalities to care and different um, community networks you can kind of get involved with. So I want our clients to know that, that everything that's available them, to them, they're exposed to while they're here. And uh, who decides what type of insurance they have and who, how much is, this is going to cost, you know, to see which program they take upon, you know, and do more people do the short form or do they do the long form? We have an admissions team, so everyone kind of goes through that initial process to determine what level of care they might need, what level of service they might need. And then on arrival, we would do an intake that really will help determine what are their needs, what can we do to support this client, and in what time frame might we need that. In regards to the insurance, that's also all processed through our central admissions team. So they're the ones that kind of run verifications to determine, you know, what those benefits are and whether they would meet the criteria from the financial standpoint. And they are willing to kind of work with people also 
to, to make sure that they get to treatment. So even if we might not be able to help them here at our facility, we're always willing to help get them somewhere that is able to meet their needs. Now there are cash payers as well? There is, yes. In case somebody has substantial money and uh, they, they just need the help and they have the money to pay for it. Absolutely. Uh, there is that ability to, to do insurance or cash. You say from Monday through Friday. So what happens on the weekend? Yeah, so the weekend is really dependent on the individual. If they're living in our sober living, then there is a lot of structure and activities provided within our sober living in the evening, they kind of have community cooking. So the clients will cook together, everyone that lives in the house. And then they typically will go to a meeting together, an AA, an NA, recovery dharma. They might go to the peer recovery center for acupuncture or meditation. And then on the weekends, if they're in our sober living, we do have typically an activity on Saturday. They might go to the science museum or to the aquarium or sledding or to the beach or last Saturday, for example, they all went to the men's sober living house, went to the gym. Um, and then on Sunday, they all went to the beach and did a polar plunge with each other. <laughs> um, so it, it really is just like Kristen said, we're really trying to build a community. We strongly believe the opposite of addiction is connection. So building connections in whatever possible ways we can is so important, not only for remaining in the program, but for lasting recovery, right? So however we can help build those connections to our staff members, the client to client connection, the client's connection to the community is what's so important. And then if someone doesn't live in our sober living, then really we work with them on a plan. And what that plan might be is well, I have kids, so I can't go out on the weekend or, right, I can't go to meetings. So really helping them put that on paper. What does that look like to make sure you still have a structure outside of being in the clinical building Monday to Friday? And how can we help you develop that to make it work? And sometimes that includes involving the family, right? How can we make sure the family is educated to be able to support their family member while they're here in treatment to make sure that those activities um, are feasible on the weekends and in the evenings. I was going to say the family is, I believe, plays a key part in the success rate. Because you, usually if somebody is suffering from addiction, the family's in chaos. And you need to bring the family in so the, and get them settled so that they go from there. Um, the family piece is huge. I completely agree. And I think um, a lot of times we say, you know, while your family member is here in recovery, this is your time to, to work on your own recovery, right? And that might not be recovery from addiction if that's not what you're suffering from. However, there's been some level of your life has been revolved around your family member that is an addiction. And how can you now refocus your mm -hmm. attention to make sure that you're doing things to get well also? Yes. Are, are you... You said you have a nurse there, correct? A nurse practitioner, we practitioner. do, yeah. Yep. So do you have um do you do the medically assisted treatment program? We they call do it MAT. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We do do MAT medication assisted treatment. Um we do suboxin, vivitrol, supplicate injections. The only thing that we don't do here is methadone maintenance. However, we'll do anything else. Now, methadone doesn't really fall under that kind of a program. It's a little different. 
and for those that I, I do know a little bit that it's basically a, uh, it is a type of form of opioid, but it, the way it works is it keeps you from having the desire for, for this opioid, like an Oxycontin or Oxycodone and, and you stay on it for a while and it's basically a bridge to sobriety. It will get you, you'll be able to be weaned off slowly and the Devitrol, you take a, usually they get, give you a shot and it's good for 30 days. Well, they say it's good for 30 days, but you got to be careful when it gets to the 26th or 27th day. For some people, it does wear off. And when you say in your, in your, on your uh, website, you know, the holistic approach. So can you give me an idea what you mean by that? Yeah. So that's holistic is more of like an organic approach to your recovery. For instance, we have yoga here. We do a drumming class. We have a shaman that comes in once a week and does kind of like an experiential type, um, like a, a shamanic drumming circle. And then we also have a local artist that comes in and does art with our clients once a week. So they're all just different approaches to care because, again, we just don't know what one person is going to gel with. Because we, for instance, with our yoga classes, not everybody wants to partake in the yoga. But then we do have the handful of people that really look forward to yoga every week and wish that we you know, could do yoga every day. So that in itself, like outside of here to expose them to things like yoga and drumming, music, art, what have you. Those are all different communities that they can ultimately connect with after leaving here. Or they find that that's an outlet for themselves to like get out of, you know, their head with like, that's a almost like a meditative state for them when they're drawing or drumming or they're, you know, doing yoga postures, it's a way for them to get out of their head naturally, whereas they were using substances before to escape. Okay. And you find, like, what is the ages, primarily ages of your, and, you know, is it more one than the other? And is what's the ratio of females to males? We have a very broad um, range of ages, anywhere from 18 up through what, 70 plus, and then- Oh, that's good. Primarily... What you're telling us is addiction hits everybody, at, anybody at any age. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is, there is, um, does not hide from anyone, that's for sure. And how is the, um, the addiction of gambling? Has that started to have an effect? Do you have anybody who's, you know, usually the gambling addiction is not something you hear about as much as you hear about alcoholism or drug overdoses and drug addiction, but the gambling is going to become a big thing now because you, you can't escape it. If you watch TV, the FanDuel and DraftKings and anytime you watch a sporting event, I mean, they'll be coming on the Red Sox saying who has the most runs by the third inning will win. You know, you'll be able to bet on everything, you know including politicians and races and things like that, you know. You know, the, the reason why people gamble is because you get high when you win. Just another way of getting high without taking a, an opioid to get high or drinking alcohol to get high, you know, or to get a buzz on, as they would say. But when somebody comes in and they're, let's say they've been drinking for 
for months and months. Um, do you recommend that they get detoxed first, you know, like in a place like your neighbor down the street, like Evoke or something like that? Or, uh, or do, in other words, are you usually the first point that they come to or are you the second point they come to? Second or third point, we, we absolutely recommend that they, well, they have to go to detox first. Um, <laughs> There's a medical component to withdrawal from alcohol, from opiates, and that's not something that we're capable of treating here. So going to detox first is, is typically the first line of defense for a lot of individuals. Sometimes even after detox, which is the medical piece to kind of go through those medical withdrawals, sometimes individuals might go to residential after that and then come to us. However, we will take individuals right from detox as well, as long as they're not still experiencing active withdrawal symptoms. Okay, do you get any court assigned patients? Are any of them going to like drug court and they have to come to you as that part of their program? We do have individuals, yeah, that have come and that's kind of a condition of of their participating in the court or that have legal matters. And, and certainly that's something we're happy to work with. I think that it can certainly help individuals to to get some sobriety time and to be able to kind of look at their actions in a different light now that they're in treatment. So although it might start as I really have to come because this is a condition of court or my family's putting pressure on me, they often kind of make a turn around, you know, a few week mark where they start to kind of see the impact of their behavior and want to continue treatment at that point. Yes, they, um, <clears throat> sure they burn till most of them burn a lot of bridges in their way and they're going to have to go back and go through now. Now like AA, they have the 12 step program. You, um, you encourage them to, to go through the, that program or do you have a different kind of, like your program kind of involves all sorts of different things during the day. Um, you actually both. have meetings on, say that again. We encourage both. So our, we're not necessarily like 12 step immersion here in the clinical building, but they are exposed to that in the evenings when they go out collectively as a group with the house, they go out to meetings in the community and they're usually either AA or NA based. And we do really try and strongly encourage them getting a sponsor working this 12-step program, absolutely. Okay. We do some groups here that are um, like introductions to the 12 steps also so that we can kind of provide an educational foundation for them to, to have some more knowledge so that when they do go into meetings or do start working with a sponsor, they already kind of have a little bit of those tools under their belt. And if someone chooses that they really don't want to work the 12 steps and maybe recovery dharma or meditation or something else is their avenue, then we're certainly happy to support that as well. And we do encourage one of those pathways outside of our services. Okay. You also have on your website, trauma informed care treatment program. And you're talking about trauma, you're talking about somebody who's experienced PTSD and uh, something of that nature. Do they get therapy treatment for trauma? Absolutely. So trauma is really defined as 
any event that is distressing to the individual, right? So what trauma might look like for you could look like something very different for myself. So really on, on intake, the clinician will discuss with that individual a multitude of things that might have happened in their life that at the time the individual might not even recognize as a trauma. And those are things that we might point out, we might start working on. So it could really be, you know, grief can be a trauma up to, you know, a level of abuse or domestic violence. So trauma is really this this big realm of items. And it's really anything that caused a distressful reaction in someone's life. And often individuals that are using substances have had trauma, whether it's as a result of using or potentially why they started using. One of our biggest goals here is really to provide and foster a safe environment so that individuals can start to open up and start to work on that. I think, you know, one of the biggest gifts we can give anyone is to be able to feel safe in their own skin and to feel worthy and to feel hopeful. And that's really something that we strive for here. And that's a huge part of trauma-informed care, being mindful of that, being mindful of how we speak to each other, how we speak to clients is, is so important. And informing clients of how to speak to each other. Yeah, I was going to say, what about suicide prevention? Because anybody who's experienced trauma, suicide may be in the back of their mind. Have you had, you, do you do anything to, so that you can determine whether somebody has been having suicidal thoughts, you know, currently or in the past? So, you know, do you approach them a different way? Yeah. We definitely do suicide safety assessments. We do risk assessments, the clinicians, we do that with all individuals that come here. And I think that, like you said, I mean, when people lose hope, that's something they think about. And even if it's not direct suicidal thoughts, it might be thoughts of, I just wish I was dead. I can't go on like this. I can't live like this. And those are all things we take into consideration in, in everything we do. So every group that we have, every individual counseling session has some undertone of, of hope and how we can help prevent suicide because that is, it's huge. And it's something I well, don't think is always talked about enough in programs either. Okay. And if somebody wants to, to get into the program or if somebody, a family member wants them to get into the program, what is, I assume a phone call is the first step, right? Yes. Phone call is the first step. And there's someone that works in admissions 24 hours a day that would be happy to take their call. And how about that phone number? Can you give me help about that number? The phone number is 617 617- So Megan, I know why you brought her along because she remembers those things. That's right. (laughs) She is, yes. (laughs) Yeah. So is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like to talk about the East Coast Recovery Center? No, I, I, I think really just, you know, if you or anyone you know is struggling to contact us, there there is help is here. And a lot of us here are in recovery ourselves. So we're peers and there's no like hierarchy of, you know, I'm your therapist and, and or I'm 
the group facilitator, most of us are on the same playing field. Just because I'm 20 years sober does not mean anything. I've been in that seat before. I've had one day sober. I've had five months sober, what have you. So I can definitely identify with where you've been. And I'm happy to have that conversation with you or a loved one, a parent, a husband, wife, whoever might just have a question or, you know, they're debating of even contemplative, like, do I have a problem? Do I not have a problem? Like, what can I do about it? Then give us a call. We're happy to even just have a conversation with you. Okay. That sounds good. And so that's, and, and uh, Christian, is that how you got into the, into the whole study of recovery? Yeah, so I'm a nurse by trade. I've been a nurse for 20 years and working in the healthcare field. I primarily worked in family medicine for the majority of my career. And I found that there's so many people struggling and this is a disease. And at the primary care level, we weren't actually treating it as a disease at the time. And I just started really what I call going rogue and advocating for patients that came across my desk that were struggling with alcohol or substance use disorder. And we started to build a program within primary care. It was called OBAT, Office-Based Addiction Treatment. It was just received so well when I was reaching out to patients that unfortunately had not been reached out to before that were going through the emergency room door with alcohol-related incidents or drug overdoses. And it wasn't they weren't getting what they needed. So, and that that was a conversation, just simple as that, just to have a conversation with them and let them know, you know, we are here to help. There are medications that can help. There's behavioral health, there's, you know, 12 step immersion programs, there's treatment facilities, there's all of these great things that are here to help you. And unfortunately they weren't aware of that because that, that initial, outreach wasn't being made. So that's really kind of what set me off, you know, moving from family medicine into addiction medicine, probably about five years ago. Well, that's, that seems to be the, the general trend that I've, I've noticed with a lot of people. I just spoke with a gentleman who's 17 years sober, and now he's gone back to school to become a recovery coach. Same idea. Absolutely. And Megan, did you have a specific history? Just hope. I mean, the reason I got into this field and into social work, it's just so important for me that people have hope. Addiction does not discriminate. I think it would be naive for anyone to think it hasn't affected every single person that you come across in this world. And I think how it affects us obviously is different. You know, there's there's been a lot I've seen and it just really opened my eyes to wanting to be able to provide hope to removing the stigma, to knowing that there's support, there's life in recovery, and there's just so many things out there and that people do care. Right. And what about the ownership of the of the overall company, East Coast Recovery? Are you a one a solo operation or are you part of a bigger chain? And do you have private ownership? We do have two owners here, Tom Mead and Brian Galvin. 
who own East Coast Recovery. And then we are also a part of a larger organization called HCANA, which is Healthcare Associates of North America. And they do have other facilities located in North Carolina and also in Tennessee. However, our two owners, Tom and Brian, are here on site at East Coast Recovery in Cohasset. They're very involved in our programming. They come and meet with clients. They give us ideas on groups they might wanna see. And they really have a powerful presence here that I think creates an environment that you might not see at larger organizations. So they're hands-on owners, they're not absentee owners. Absolutely. That's good. I like to see that happening because I know once you do that, it's going going in the right direction. So. No, they're here every day. They live right in town. They're, they're, very plugged in. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I want to thank you both for uh, joining me today. That's very interesting. And again, give out the phone number one more time, please. The phone number is 617-648-5686. Okay. And I thank you, Kristen and Megan. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. And thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Take care. When you go out for dinner, you really want to head to a spot you know. Your local gem in the city of Presidents is the Fowler House Cafe. Family owned and operated, the Fowler House Cafe is a Quincy landmark serving American cuisine every day. Stop by the Fowler House Cafe and enjoy their famous buffalo fingers, specialty sandwiches, pasta, steaks, and more. Better yet, try their South Shore bar style pizza today. These crowd pleasers are all homemade and will keep your family fed and happy. Trying to catch the game with a few friends? The Fowler House Cafe offers eight 18 different draft beers, including seasonal options and microbrews. To top it all off, the Fowler House has a large array of 4K ultra high-def TVs, ensuring you're never going to miss a single play. The Fowler House Cafe, located at 1049 Hancock Street, right in the heart of downtown Quincy. Call 617-773-9000 or go to thefowlerhousecafe.com to place your order today. The Fowler House Cafe, Quincy's best. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Courage to Hope with your host, Tony LaGreca, your friend, Ben Rabinovitz, alongside with you. And we are going to have a special segment here today because we have a very special subject that needs to be addressed. Recently, as everyone knows, gambling has taken on a new form here in Massachusetts, and the online sports world is open for grabs. There is a lot of pros. There's a lot of cons, probably mostly cons. But we're going to break it down and find out all the ins and outs right here on Courage to Hope. Tony LaGreca joins us here once again. Tony, welcome back. And a great interview here the first half of our program, but a very near and dear special subject to address today. Yes, uh, thank you, Ben. And the gambling issue, I believe, is going to absolutely get out of control in in this state and every state where it's become legal to, to bet on sporting events and every kind of event in this area. Um, I have a history of uh, gambling uh, issues with myself personally, and I understand how it works. And I understand that even though it's legal, they're going to do it the same way that some of the bookmakers used to do it back in the day. And in fact, I think it's going to go to the extreme much worse than with the way the bookies used to do it, because 
in, back in the day, you can only bet between 6.30 and 7.30, and they would give out the lines at that time. And what that means is they'd give out the point spreads and how much it was going to cost if you wanted to bet this team or that team. And at 7.30, the door would shut. Now I've been watching a lot of sporting events, and they're ruining it, actually. They're ruining the sporting event that we look forward to watching the Celtics or the Bruins play because now they come in at, uh, at the end of the first period and they, they talk about who's going to score the next goal. You can bet on the very next goal. Who's going to make the next three-point shot? Who's going to do how many points are you going to win or lose in this quarter? And you have so many options to lose money. It's just unbelievable. Absolutely. And losing money is exactly what's most likely going to be happening in 98% of the cases. Of course, a lucky few will have that success. The bright, shiny lights will go off. The big, loud noises it will feel like a big winner for a minute. And then inevitably life will take hold once again. And we all know where that can lead. Uh, Tony, your feelings on what must have been going through the legislature to allow something like this? And of course, it was a vote by the people, as we all know. But I mean... I just feel like there's so many more cons than pros here. Is this really the best way for Massachusetts to be making additional revenue? Um, of course not. But um, if if all the money is going <clears throat> going to all the betting and everything is going to Las Vegas or some of the sports books in other states, um, the state felt that they needed to get their share. You know, everybody wants their share. And now, now I'll explain to you how it works. If you want to bet on a team, like if you want to bet on the Red Sox on Thursday, and let's say the Red Sox are the heavy favorite, you would have to put up, let's say, 180 to win 100. Now, if you want to bet on the other team, you would bet, <clears throat> you would bet 100, but you'd only win 150 or 140. And if you figure it out that enough people bet on one side and then they bet and another people bet on the other side, as long as the money, as long as the money's kind of even on both sides, what usually happens is the the house will automatically win no matter who wins, and that's how the house makes their money. But the other side of it is this: people will gamble, and let's say that they bet two or three games on Wednesday, and they lose more than they win, and now they're down two hundred or three hundred dollars, and in some cases two thousand, three thousand dollars, depending on the size of the scope of the of the gambler. And then they figure they can make it back tomorrow night. And tomorrow night they bet in some cases, the $300 guy, he starts, he makes a couple of $600 bets thinking that he could pull it off. And I'll tell you that the point spreads, let's do, let's talk about basketball for a minute. You can have a point spread of plus four, which means that if you take the underdog, they have to, they can't <clears throat> lose by more than four points. And if you take the favorite, it would be plus five or plus, I mean, minus five or minus four. And then it goes the other way. Now, one of the things is that um, there'll actually be a space in the middle, right in the middle where, where the house wins everything. But the big thing is you, you think you can figure it out, but you really can't because these guys in Las Vegas who do the lines they really know what they're talking about. <clears throat> You'll see a lot of games when one team's up by 18 or 20 points. But at the end of the game, if the spread is minus three, 
it might be minus four or minus two. It'll come back. They always seem to know. And that's that's when it hurts. You know, if you lose and you you figure you can double up. I knew a guy once who took who started off betting like two hundred dollars on the Red Sox and the Red Sox lost. And then he bet another the next night he bet four hundred. He wanted to win two hundred and get his two hundred back. Well, he lost again. And remember, he's paying VIG, which the VIG is the interest, which is the overage. So if you want to bet to win $100, you might have to put up 120 or 140 And of course, that gets exaggerated once you get up over the 1000 mark. If you want to win uh, $1,000, you might have to put up 1200 You might have to put up 1800 depending on how much of a favorite the team is. But in the long run, you will always lose. And this particular guy ended up losing seven straight to the point where he was out seven or eight thousand wow. dollars. He couldn't play anymore because the bookie asked him for the money. He says, "I want the money now," and he didn't have it. And I tell you, back in the old days, what ends up happening is <clears throat> they'll send good. a loan shark by, and the loan shark will loan you the money, and now you got to pay five percent a week on what you owe them, and that's that's big house money. And if you remember the uh, couple of movies that uh, John Travolta was in, he was out. He was one of those guys who was the collector. And they tell him they don't care. You you have to make you have to pay the money. Now, when it, with it's le- with illegal betting, what's going to end up happening is you're going to end up owing your credit card five thousand or ten thousand dollars. And instead of a loan shark, you're going to have a bank who's going to charge you seventeen percent interest on your card. But 19 or 20 percent interest on your card. So if you lose a two thousand dollar bet, you're really going to lose like twenty six hundred because you're going to end up paying super interest on your credit card. And then you think you can come back and use a different card or get two cards or three cards before too long. You'll have maxed out all three of your cards. And now you're in big, big trouble because now you got to pay, <clears throat> got to pay the interest on all those cards. And that's when you start thinking about mortgage in your house or getting a second mortgage on your house or home equity loan so you can pay it back. And I'm really worried that with the accessibility that they have to gamble now, and it's right on the TV while you're watching the game, they flash the phone number, FanDuel, or, uh, you know, what's the other one, DraftKings, and and they're opening the, the, the gates constantly throughout the game. And that's just one game. There's people who they'll be betting like seven, eight, nine games. And that's that's where you really get into trouble uh, because you can all, all of those games come out. If you if you go 50 50, you're going to lose money because you have to put extra money up to win that money. And so if you've lost three games, another example of you pay 180 to win 100, 160 to win 100. And you do let's say you won, you bet four games and you win two and you lose two. Well, you're only making 100 and 100, but when you're losing on the other side, you're losing 180 and 160. You could now right there, you you're out 140 dollars, and you and you you broke even. You you split. You won two and you lost two. You see where that gets into a lot of trouble. And gamblers, the the high you get from gambling is no different than the high you get from alcohol or from opioids. You know, it's it's that that endorphins surge that goes on in your brain. And that makes it, and that, that's what does it. 
And, it, you know, it starts at a very innocent age. And, and I grew up in an Italian household where people were playing Pochino for money and they were paying playing poker every Saturday night for for quarters and half dollars. You know, there used to be a half dollar, believe it or not, all the time. I remember. So, yeah. So, and I'm really worried that we're going to have a major epidemic across the country. We're going to have crime will crime will rise because people are going to be desperate and they're going to want to keep gambling. So they'll start stealing and borrowing money and stealing credit cards and doing embezzling at work. Um, whatever it's going to take to keep the gambling going, just no different than somebody on drugs or on alcohol. You know, they want to keep it going and you won't be able to tell because there won't be any physical change. It's just going to be stressed out and, and uh, they'll be just praying for a score the next day. Now I'm really confused, Tony, and maybe I'm ignorant to the situation a little bit here, but I mean, I know we talk a lot about, personal willpower and power of choice in all these different instances. But gambling is one of those type of addictions where, you know, unlike opioids and other actual substances, there is no hooking substance. There is no when other than the regular dopamine that occurs when the lights start flashing, the big loud music, you win, winner, 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 all that stuff starts going off. That's that excitement rush. But I mean, do you think the average person lacks that ability to control themselves enough to remember, yeah, you know, it's nice to win one. Look at that. That was fun. But now it's over and we're moving on. Where is that in this equation? (laughs) Once you've made some kind of a score and you've made, you've made a hit and I'll give you my own personal story. It's, it's kind of silly when you look back at it now, but you got to remember this is, um, this was 1960. I was collecting bottles and I was like 10 years old. And I was collecting bottles at Marshfield Fair. And I heard that this horse. For the youngins out there, can you just explain real quick what that means? Oh, collecting bottles, which means that you, you know, you get the two cents and three cents back on the bottle. And I used to literally fill a car up, my father's car up every single day with the beer bottles and soda bottles at Marshfield Fair. So many that at the end of the, at the end of the week, the guy from the factory used to come with the truck and pick up the bottles. And I would make 70 or $80 just picking up bottles at two cents a piece. Cause I had so many, I had literally thousands of them. Wow. And, and, but I, you know, I had money and when I wasn't doing that, I was actually cohogging and digging a couple of bushel of cohogs at tide and those were whopping $2 and 80 cents. We get paid for that. But, you know, I heard about a horse that was going to, that was a, there wasn't a heavy favorite, but it was a pick to win. And it was the last race of the week. And I bet $2 on it to show. Now that doesn't sound, that sounds $2. It doesn't sound like much, but for somebody who was 10 years old, it was a lot of money. And you could buy an ice cream cone for a nickel then. So you can do the comparison. And the horse went around the gate, around the track. And this was a, a mile and a 16th. So the uh, Marshfield Fairgrounds was a half mile track. So it went around the first time dead last, went around the second time dead last. And then to see that horse come on the outside in the final turn. And when it was by the eighth pole, it pulled away and it won. And it was exciting. It was terrific. It was thrilling. And the horse paid $2 and 20 cents. I made 20 cents, but 
The thrill of winning was so great, I couldn't wait to do it again. And the following year, I was hooked. I started betting every single race. And, and that's the deal. You get hooked. You get hooked at that excitement of coming down the stretch. I mean, you watch the Kentucky Derby on TV. And, you know, some people in the sands have bet $5,000, $10,000 on a five-to-one shot, and you could win $25,000 if the horse wins. And uh, But even for a young person, just winning, just the fact that the winning is was the thing. Now, I I got grew up and I became, a, and I would say, a, a degenerate gambler. By the time I was 25, I was betting $3,000 a day. And I was betting a thing called action reverses, where you would bet on one team, and if they win, the money goes on another team. And then you reverse it. So you bet on the second team to win, and you win that race, then it goes back to the first team. So it's like A to B and B to A. So if one of them loses, you only lose, and one and one of them wins, you'd only lose that one bet. If you win, you win the four bets. So you have a better, you have a higher risk, but you have a better chance of making more money. And so I would do those for five hundred dollars a piece. This was back when people were making three hundred dollars a week, and that's and I I had a, a stash because I was doing okay for a while, and I and uh, and I would bet horses the same way and horses I was good at, but again, over time you will eventually lose. And I lost to the point where I had to refinance my house. And I've discussed this with some people who work for AA and they know exactly what I'm talking about. So now if I see all this gambling crap on TV, I have to put it on mute. I can't watch it. I can't watch it because it's calling to me constantly. It's always calling out. And you can't, you can't, you know, you, you just can't let it do it. Cause I know what, I know what it's doing, you know? And, um, the worst thing I ever do now is I play March Madness, you know, for somebody for lunch. And that's it. Somebody for lunch, you know. And I can tell you that unless you get a lot of people lost a lot of money in the last two weeks because the final four, as you know, there were four uh, in each region. There was a team that was picked number one, number two, number three, all the way up to number 16. It's the first time in history. Number one, two, or three. There are no one, two, or three teams in the final four. So I'm almost going to, I'm willing to bet there's nobody in the United States that has the four teams that are in the, um, in the final four right now. I think the bookmakers have made a ton of money, a ton of money. Alabama was a big favorite, and Kansas, everybody said, was going to repeat, and people were just going in that, in, out in that direction. You know, and so it didn't happen. Wow! So this this is what this is the kind of thing, and it's uh, and if I if I I see I can actually get, I actually can start perspiring if I watch World Series of Poker on television, and it gets to be that bad. So I have to take my energy and put it into work. I put it into other things, and right now my energy is you know is going after addiction. It's helping people that are trying to be in recovery. And I, I'm just so afraid that people who are trying to be, especially people who are staying sober from alcohol, uh, gambling and gambling and alcohol 
just don't mix. That's the worst thing because you you start getting you start getting down on yourself, and all of a sudden you're going to pick up that drink, and that's another part of this that I don't want to see happen. And I'm just very nervous that we're going to have this whole society that is going to be out straight on gambling, and they're going to be broke. They're going to this is going to be a, a, a big issue coming down in the next year or two. You go, you'll see it. There's going to be so many people going to lose so much money. And yeah. you can, I can tell you, if you go to Vegas and you look at those buildings, they didn't build those buildings because everybody was winning. You know, very true. Uh, I, Caesar's Palace is not a palace because people are winning. It's because people are paying for it. What's I always say: what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and that's your money. Up to and including the bands, and that actually brings up a really good question that I wanted to ask you because obviously you have a very unique perspective on this. I guess it's actually a multi-part question, Tony. Um, Being a person who's actively trying to stay away from these advertisements and these onslaughts of, uh, um, that's the word I'm looking for, the onslaught of possibility, how do you feel about truly the difference of online compared to in-house gambling, meaning you physically have to go out there. You physically have to get into the casino if that's what you're trying to do. So now that I, it's I think, available in your living room, is that, I mean, obviously it opens up all those doors, but the comparison of the in-house experience, especially for someone like yourself who's trying to stay away from, in your in your normal everyday life, how do you feel about I th- that? I, I think it's horrific that you can do it in your own living room. Um, I think that's really a bad scenario because I think where people are going to lose control. If you're in the casino, you're actually taking money out of your pocket and you're seeing it going away. That's that, you know, if you can only bet what you have with you and you leave your credit cards at home, um, that's, that's, it's not great, but it's better than this at at home. I mean, there's a, there's a channel right now that's, that has horse races on all day. And when, and I mean all day and all night because they go to different countries after they're done with the United States, <clears throat> you can bet on Australia at nine o'clock in the morning because it's nine o'clock at night down in Australia or New Zealand. And you can sit there and you can bet race after race. And usually you can bet three races in 20 minutes. And because they, they just go from one track to the next. And there's usually about a five minutes or six minute break between tracks. And if they run out of time, they go to the sulkies or they go to the dogs. So you, you can just sit there and bet on, on your phone, you know, and, and people that are trained by the way, when just to give you an idea and, and, and some of the things that we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I remember in the old days when you're talking to a guy and you're a Massachusetts guy, he wouldn't say, Boston, he would say Celtics because he would work on your emotion. And Celtics might be a nine-point favorite here, but they're only a six-point favorite in Las Vegas. And the other team that they're playing against is um, they should be a nine-point underdog if you're the other team is a nine-point favorite, but they don't do it that way. Sometimes they would make them um, – a six points on the other on the on the other side, or make it eleven points. They always made it tougher to win if you were betting on the local of the home team, and they would never say Boston. You say Boston, no, they say Celtics against Philadelphia. You know, 
And if you were down, if you were down 1,500, they would say you're down 1,500. If you were up 1,500, they would say you're up 1,500. 1,500. 1,500 sounds a lot better, doesn't it, than 1,500? Sure does. Feels nice and powerful. Right. But if you're losing, they don't want you to be thinking 1,000. No, God, no. This, they want you to be talking about 1,500, you know, because it it's not so bad. I believe and, you there's know, called active psychology at play here, Tony, if I'm not mistaken here. Oh, this is how they do it. This is the house. Now, the one plus thing I've noticed that Apple TV has has taken over um, some of the MLS and they've taken some major league baseball games. And the good news is they don't advertise. So I think there's a, at least something down the road that um, I don't know how the Nesson's going to do it with the Red Sox this year. But I certainly know that the Celtics have been putting up FanDuel constantly where you can bet on this on the, each, each quarter. You can bet at halftime whether the team would win and if they're going to win, how many points they're going to win by. So they, they, that's a rolling gambling situation there. And it's very dangerous, very dangerous. You can get in the hole so quick, you know. And I mean, you know, the scratch cards have been available in Massachusetts for a long time. And I used to have a business in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and I was next to a, like a 7-Eleven, a, a bodega kind of shop where they sold scratch cards. And on Friday afternoons, we'd see people pull in and buy 300 scratch cards. They're a dollar a piece. And they'd sit in, sit in their car and scratch them all. And they'd go through, they'd, and they'd win a couple of them. They'd go back in, and instead of getting the money, they'd go back in and get 50 more scratch cards with the $50 they just won until they had nothing left. And some of these people would just litter up the parking lot and I could see hundreds of scratch cards in the parking lot on Saturday morning. I can absolutely attest to that, Tony. I, I used to, among my many jobs in my past lives, I was a attendant at a, a, an Exxon station. I won't name where just to protect the names, but I had a gentleman that would come by every single day, two to three times a day. And he would drop no less than four to $500 per visit. And you know what eventually happened after years and years? You know, you, you actually get to know the guy, you know, his family. Everyone comes through, gets gas, whatever they're getting. And then one day it all comes to a head and the wife comes in and says, can you do me a favor? Can you stop selling my husband anything to do with any of this? I just found out that all of my children's college funds are empty. And he yeah. stuck them all in all these little zones right here. And this was a fellow that was, you know, held himself very highly in regard, and rightfully so, good guy, always generous, this, that, and the other thing. And then after I saw him after that particular example, Tony, you want to talk about a broken individual inside and out, completely different person. And honestly, to this day, I hope he's well. I really do, because I don't know what happened after all that. But that's a level of personal trauma that i could never envision bringing upon a family member or my my own children so as as someone who can take a look at that situation from the outside looking in a little bit i mean what were some of the signs that we should have been looking for what were some of the things obviously coming in and spending you know a thousand dollars plus a day probably a flag in itself but on a personal level what should someone be on the lookout for to try to help well, there isn't much you can do if they're doing it in the dark. 
Um, that's the biggest thing. The biggest thing you got to keep track of the money. All of a sudden, the mortgage doesn't get paid. And if you see that one family member, and this is women just as much as men when it comes to gambling. Uh, I've seen just as many women go down the drain as the husbands. In fact, a lot of women are in charge of the checkbook. And, you know, there's a check somewhere buried in there made out to cash that the wife is charged, is used at the local bank or she's going making trips to the ATM and getting the cash and um, figuring it out that way. And then all of a sudden, the, the family bills don't get paid. And one of the spouses think that the bills are being paid. And they're not because they're all going down the drain to, to a fan duel. You know, and, and I, I happen to know somebody who was one of the starting members of FanDuel. And within three years, this guy bought seven houses. And I don't mean just houses. He bought one on the ocean in Nantucket. He bought another one down in Boca Raton, Florida. Bought another one in Hawaii. And he didn't do this because he was everybody was winning. I can't believe how much money he's made in three years four years and, and and I could see it in the real estate that he owns. And I don't know how much money he's got in the bank, but um, it's pretty amazing. And just me sitting here talking to you, I'm getting fired up myself and uh, getting that, getting that rush feeling in my system, you know, just because you're um, actively talking about it. That's correct. So it's, it's, it's bringing up, you know, and going to gamblers anonymous, which is, they call it GA. Um, there used to be a couple of sessions where you can have meetings right near Suffolk Downs racetrack. And because uh, there's all kinds of gambling, there's gambling on horses and dogs and then gambling on sports. And and the way it's set up now, there's going to be dan- dan- gambling on who's going to win the presidency. There'll be gambling on the Senate and the Congress in your local district in Massachusetts. Everything you can gamble on now. And back in the day, the bookies didn't even get involved with that. But it seems like uh, the big syndicate, the Vegas, I call it the Vegas syndicate. You know, they say, oh, FanDuel and DraftKings are right here from Massachusetts. Yeah, they, both of those did start in the Boston area. But they're, no, they're not regional. I mean, local. They're, they're a national deal. And they're using big time money. And it'll be it'll be billions of dollars that'll they'll, that they'll take in and that that they'll keep, and that's that's what's going to happen. And I, what you have to do is to try to, if you if you know you got the bug, and you know you you just have to stay away from it, you know. And I can you know you see how many people go into certain restaurants just because they, I know one restaurant's full every Friday night because they have keno, you know. And everybody's sitting there playing six numbers or seven numbers. And that starts off pretty harmless. But before too long, then I bet in the $5, they're betting 20. And then it's $20 a game. It doesn't take too long before you've gone through a couple of hundred. You know, hopefully a couple of hundred and you lose, you get a bad taste in your mouth and that's the end of it. But it doesn't work that way if you get lucky and you make a score and you're going to try to make that score day in and day out. Tony, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about a sensitive subject with us and all the listeners here on WMEX, of course, listening to Courage to Hope right now. And uh, I mean, in closing, let's let's talk about how realistically, 
how long this can possibly last? Because honestly, I mean, even from my perspective, without a history of, of being involved directly in any kind of gambling addiction or anything like that, I don't think, you know, again, my opinion here, just don't think this is a good idea. I just, this is not a constructive method of entertainment. This is no longer about watching the game. There's no family values here. It's, it's flat out is what it is. And I recognize that you know, certain states in the union can do whatever they want to do. And now Massachusetts is one of them. But I believe that there is some level of a personal choice that people need to make before things start, before things get out of hand and before they realize it's already too late. Because this is one of those things, just like drinking, you know, the hook is there. And if you set it, man, it's pretty hard to get that hook out. That's right. Well, the thing to remember is you have no control over who's going to win or lose. So you're betting on other people. You have no control over who's going to win or lose. And that's that's the critical thing. If you're working for a living and you're a salesman and you're a, um, you do some sort of work where you make commission, and you know you you have control over your environment and over your job, but when you start betting on sports, and I, I give you a classic example that I thought about the other day, there was a a team that was um, the the Celtics were I think they were four point favorites, and they were ahead by five, with one point six seconds left on the clock, and they already would they weren't even on the the court they were all hanging out and talking to each other and the other team put the threw the ball in and the guy was standing there on the on the on the edge threw up a 35 foot shot it went in as the buzzer was going off everybody who had bet the Celtics that night just lost and you see you have no control and you know you don't even know if they're going to try if they know they've already won the game the other team can't come back and then they let that team take a a shot with no defense, and all of a sudden the Celtics, instead of winning by five, they only won by two. And then anybody who bet the Celtics lost, all all right down to the last second. You know, and, and the worst part now is that you can bet all the games at 7 o'clock, and then the West Coast games start at 10 or 10.30. You're not going to get much sleep if you've got money on the, on the 10.30 game because it isn't going to get over until 1 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, then you next day you'll be getting the newspaper and you'll be going on the Internet. And you'll be studying who's injured, who isn't, who's hurt for the for the Los Angeles Clippers and who's playing. You know, what's Kevin Durant? Is he going to come back and is he going to play in the next two or three games? And, you know, I do this all in my head while I'm just sitting there watching and I'm not betting because I'm I know I, I have it. The disease is, is is there, but I know what I have to do. And the good news is I've learned to like my money better than giving it away. So that's how I can get away with it. It's a good way to be, my friend. It's a good way to be. No way about that. Tony, I really yeah. thank you for t- talking to us about this special subject. And once again, uh, you are listening to The Courage to Hope. And uh, this has been a very special presentation. And Folks, if you want to listen to it again, don't forget to go to the website, wmexboston.com. If you want to share it with a friend or a loved one who you think would benefit from hearing this conversation, or you want to reach out, you can do all of that at wmexboston.com. Email at wmexboston at gmail.com. Thank you very much. 
Go ahead, Tony. And I'd like to say I would, um, I'll talk to anybody if they want to go to the website and leave me a message. That's the way to do it. You can now reach out and, you know, honestly, there's already a section right there on uh, the Courage to Hope webpage. So, perfect. So, folks, reach out. Your friends are here. Tony's here. I'm here. We're all here. The good guys and the good gals here on 1510 WMEX. Tony, thank you so much. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. Thank you.